Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Maim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercies, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. Father, I pray that as we open up your word today, that you will speak boldly into our hearts and our lives. Father, I pray that you will move mightily and powerfully in this place, and that each and every person that is here today, each and every person that listens to this message, will be touched by you, will feel the power and presence of your Kodesh of your Holy Spirit, overcome them. And Father, that we will be uh, changed by you in a mighty and miraculous way, that when we leave this place today, we will leave here uh, even more in your image, even more uh, radiant in the light of Messiah Yeshua, even more of an impact in this world for the kingdom of our God. Father, I pray that you speak powerfully through me, that it be your words spoken, your words received, your heart felt, and that nothing of me be involved except that which you have already ordained specifically for this purpose. B'shem Yeshua Meshachinu, in the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen. This week we're in Parsha Shalach uh, from uh, Numbers chapter 13 uh, through 15. This is a very important Parsha, a very important passage of Scripture uh, for us to pay attention to uh, because this is the, the primary uh, dialogue, the primary narrative in this particular passage of Scripture is uh, what takes up most of Numbers 13 and 14, and that is going to be the ten spies bringing back an evil report, Joshua and Caleb trying to usher, uh, urge Israel to follow what the Lord said and everything that ensued from there. And so we want to focus on that today, but I really want to focus on it from a little bit of a different angle. So if you have your scriptures, go ahead and open up to Numbers chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Numbers chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. It says, Adonai spoke to Moses, saying, Send some men on your behalf to investigate the land of Canaan, which I am giving to B'nai Israel. Each man you are to send will be a prince of the tribe of his father's, a man from each tribe. So according to the word of Adonai, Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran. All the men uh, were princes of B'nai Israel. All the men were princes of the children of Israel. Now, in this particular case, the Hebrew word there that's translated as prince doesn't specifically mean prince in the sense of a king's son, but rather they are leaders. They are heads of the tribes of Israel. They are the elders, the, uh, not necessarily the old people, but they are the elders, the leadership of the tribes of Israel. And in terms of, uh, of Israel, they were, we told, were told earlier in the Torah that Israel were to count the, uh, the men ages 20 and above that were able to be uh, able to go to war to fight for Israel. And so these are men that are over the age of 20 that are capable of leading Israel into warfare. Uh, one of the best, I guess, modern ways to describe it is that these were perhaps like generals, if you would, of the tribes of Israel. Uh, and so the Lord tells them to send spies into the promised land, one from uh, each of the tribes of Israel, and that they be leaders of their tribe. Now, if we go forward to, uh, to, to Deuteronomy and we look at the same exact dialogue in Deuteronomy, what we realize is that uh, Moses says in Deuteronomy that Israel asked him, 
to send spies. Israel asked him to go to God about sending spies. When we put the two together, what we realize is, is this is probably exactly what went down, is that Israel came to Moses. You know, They're standing at the Jordan River. They're ready to cross the river, but they're still scared. Right? This is the first generation that came out of Egypt. All they knew was slavery. All they know is that the whole journey up to this point, they had pretty much jacked everything up. Right? And every time they mess something up, the Lord messes them up. And, uh, and they're going, okay, well, if you go into this and we go gung-ho and we mess this up too, what's going to happen then? And so they go to Moses. They say, Moses, look, we're willing to go do this, but we need to know for sure that everything looks okay on the other side of the Jordan. And so Moses goes to God. God says, okay, look, send spies on your behalf, which is how the text begins. And I spoke to Moses saying, send some men on your behalf to investigate the land of Canaan, which I am giving to Bnei Israel. He doesn't say, send spies on my behalf. He doesn't say, I want you to send spies. He doesn't say you even need spies. He says, send spies on your behalf. In other words, if it will calm your nerves, send them on. Because the Lord already knows what he's done. The Lord already knows what he has prepared. And he knows the promises he's made to Israel. And his word never comes back unfulfilled, right? And so what we see in chapter 17, it says, As he sent them to explore the land of Canaan, he said to them, Go up there through the Negev, then go up into the hill country, see what the land is like and the people living there, whether they might be strong or weak, few or many, and what kind of land are they living? Is it good or bad? Also, what about the cities in which they are living? Are they unwalled or do they have fortification? How is the soil uh, fertile or poor? Are the trees on it or not? Do your best to bring back some of the fruit of the land. It was the season for the first ripe grapes. What's interesting here is the Lord says send spies, but he doesn't say tell them what to look for, right? I think one of the major mistakes here is that Moses said, okay, we're going to send you in, but let me give you a list of what I want you to look for. I want you to go to Negev and then move up north and see how things look. And I want you to look at the trees and how big and strong and mighty are these people? Are the wall of the city's walled or are they unfortified? What's the fruit look like? What's the soil look like? If they had just gone in and went, all right, things look all right and come back, right? Real quick, run in, run out. But instead, because he gave them kind of a, a orders, if you would, for this mission, they go in, they spend 40 days wandering around. And when they come back to Israel, they come back to the nation of Israel. They cross the Jordan heading uh, eastward to the east side of the Jordan. They go back to the people of Israel, the tribes, and they bring back this evil report, right? They bring back this awful report about what the land looks like. But what's really interesting here is it says in the passage that they actually went and they got the fruit. They got palm, a pomegranate and they got a, uh, a cl cluster of grapes. The grapes were so big that they had to carry them on this big pole and that it took two of them to carry it. And they had all this stuff, right? And they come back to the, the tribes of Israel and they say, hey, what's it look like? Is the land good? What is it like? Now, unlike what Moses probably should have done, which was said, okay, I want you to go over there, do what you got to do, come back to me. Come talk to me in private. We'll meet in the tent of meetings or we'll meet outside the camp or we'll meet somewhere and you tell me what's going to go down. You tell me what everything looks like. They come back and they bring the message about the promised land, their perspective of it, to the entire nation of Israel, to all the tribes of Israel. And so the 10 spies uh, with the evil report, Joshua and Caleb, the two with a good report, come back. And the 10 spies with the evil report go, the land is in fact flowing with milk and honey. And the, the fruit, the, the way that it grows vegetation is phenomenal. Look at how large these grapes are. Look at this pomegranate. Look at all of this stuff. It is exactly as the Lord said. But they're giants and we can't win this thing. 
If we go over there, we will die. We cannot do this, right? And they go through this whole dialogue where they're basically striking fear into the heart of the nation of Israel, which isn't so difficult because it's pretty much been their whole journey up to this point. You're talking two years since they left Egypt, and in the course of those two years, they've done nothing but been begrudging against the Lord the entire time, uh, and, and nothing seems to be changing. So here they come back with this horrible report about the promised land. And this report just flat out says it is exactly as the Lord said, but we cannot take it. He goes in verse 27, they gave their account to him and said, we went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is flowing milk and honey. This is some of its fruit. This is verse 27, now 28, except the people living in the land are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We saw even the sons of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites are living in the mountains, and the Canaanites are living near the sea and along the bank of the Jordan. Now, on a natural level, hearing the promise of the Lord say, I am going to give you the promised land, I'm going to give you the land of the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites and the Amalekites and da-da-da, I'm going to give you all of their land, it will be yours and they come back and say, hey, in all of these areas, in all of these lands, live the exact people the Lord said he's going to give us a land from. I would take that and go, that seems like confirmation. Let's do this thing, right? Let's go and, and take the land. You said it's flowing milk and honey. It's exactly like the Lord said. Let's do this thing. Let's take the land. It's ours. Let's go. But instead, they hear this message that strikes fear. Except the people living in the land are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. Then Caleb, verse 30, then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should definitely go up and capture the land for we can certainly do it. But the men then, the 10 spies then began to go through the camps telling their version of the evil report and leading Israel astray and Israel gets upset. They even say in verse 33, we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are from the Nephilim, the giants. Uh, we seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes as well as theirs. In other words, they're so big, we look tiny. Now, what's really weird about this, and the sages look at this from two different ways. One is, is that when they bring back the large cluster of grapes and stuff, that they're bringing it back to go, look, this land is awesome. Look at how awesome this fruit is. Look at everything's great. It's exactly like the Lord said, we can, we can do this. Uh, and then they have the report about how the men are too big and they can't win. But the other side of the argument is they say that the 10 spies actually were the ones that carried back the fruit and that the reason they brought it back was to go, look, these people are so big, this is the food they eat. In order for these giants to be sustained, they have to have these monstrous grapes and these monstrous pomegranates and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and so they, the, the two kind of discussions go back and forth. What we realize is that these are supposed to be men of God. These are supposed to be the leaders of the tribes of Israel. And yet when they go into the promised land, all they can see is the negative. All they can see are the things that they don't think they can beat or accomplish or overtake all they can see is what they can't do. Now, the reality is, as people of God, when we see things we can't do, what we should actually be seeing is God's perspective. Because God's going, no, you're right. This is stuff you can't do. There is no way possible for you to do this. But guess what? <laughs> you're not doing it. I got this. I'm going to do this for you. Because the Lord promises, I am handing this land over to you. He doesn't say, you're going to go in and you're going to fight for it and you're going to take it. He says, I'm going to give it to you. And we look in Joshua, that's exactly what happened. All of the early battles in the book of Joshua, the Lord provided the victory and Israel just cleaned up the mess. 
but it took Israel actually crossing the Jordan to get to that point. It took them actually believing that God was going to be able to do this. So they grumble and they say, we can't take this. Verse 4 of chapter 14 says, they said to each other, let's choose a leader and let's go back to Egypt. They're going to start a coup. They're going to get rid of Moses and they're going to have somebody lead them back to Egypt because things were so great in Egypt, right? Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the entire assembly of the community of Bnei Israel. And I say this every time we come across a verse like this, which is pretty often in the Torah about Moses and Aaron falling on their face. That's a sign of leadership right there. And the people you're leading are going astray and you fall on your face before the Lord to intercede on their behalf. That's a beautiful sign of leadership. As a matter of fact, that's exactly what Messiah does for us, is he is ever interceding on our behalf. Verse 6, Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. They said to the whole assembly of Bnei Israel, the, uh, the land through, through which we passed is an exceptionally good land. If Adonai is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land and will give, us, give, it, give it to us, a land flowing milk and honey. Only don't rebel against Adonai and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They will be food for us. The protection over them is gone. Adonai is with us. Do not fear them. The protection over them is gone. Adonai is with us. Do not fear them. And then immediately after this, they begin to talk about stoning them, getting rid of them. They refuse to go into the land. As soon as they refuse to go in the land, they refuse to do what the Lord says. The Lord gets upset and says, all right, Moses, I'm just going to wipe them all out. I'm going to start fresh with you again. And Moses, I don't want that. I told you before, I don't like this idea. Do not start with me, all right? They're pretty bad as it is. I don't want to start all over again. I'm old enough. I don't want to do this run again. And, uh, and so Moses begins to beseech the Lord and he begins to intercede on their behalf and, and repent on their behalf and ask them, uh, for ask the Lord for favor on behalf of Israel. So we go to verse 17 of chapter 14. Uh, Numbers chapter 14, verse 17. It says, So please let Adonai show his faith, uh, strength, just as you have spoken, saying, Now, in this case, Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel, but he begins to speak back Scripture to the Lord. One of the most powerful things we can pray is to pray with Scripture, Right? Because there's no greater truth than Scripture, the Lord's Word. When we speak the Lord's Word back to Himself, there's no better way to pray. So He begins to speak back the Lord's words to Him. He says, Just as you have spoken, saying, verse 18, Adonai is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. Still, He does not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. Forgive now the guiltiness of this people in accordance with the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have pardoned this people from Egypt until now. In other words, at the end, he's saying, look, we've been through this all over before, right? We've gone through this over and over and over again. We keep coming around the same thing. Forgive them now, just like you have before. It's okay. Just forgive them. But if you notice, anybody recognize verses 13, uh, verse 18? Does it look familiar at all? So 13 attributes of the nature of God from Exodus. We read about it in Exodus chapter 34, uh, in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 through 7. Uh, and in this passage, it actually says, verse 34, 6 through 7, says, Then Adonai passed before him. This is after uh, the, the whole golden calf thing, similar situation. And Moses says, Don't start fresh with me. Forgive these people, and, and let's do this. And he cries out to the Lord and says, Don't make us go if you're not going to go with us. And he says, Show me your glory. Verse 6 of chapter 34 of Exodus says, Then Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, This is God speaking, Adonai, Adonai, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and, ab and, and abundant in loving kindness and truth, 
showing mercy to a thousand generations, forgiving the, forgiving the uh, iniquity and transgression of sin, yet by no means leaving the guilty unpunished, but bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and, the, upon, the, uh, and upon the children's children to the third and fourth generation. The 13 attributes of, uh, of God mentioned in uh, Exodus chapter 34. However, if you pay attention between the two passages, you notice there's two things that are missing. Uh, notice that in, Mo, uh, in Moses' abbreviated appeal made on Israel's behalf in Numbers 14, the abbreviated version of the 13 attributes, he did not refer to the Lord as the God of mercy and grace, nor did he refer to him, or nor did he add the qualifier that God is Rav Emet, the teacher of truth. Um, and it's believed uh, the sages teach that the reason that he did this is because uh, he recognizes the situation that Israel's in. He recognizes that Israel is yet again refusing or rejecting not only God, but now God's promises and everything that the Lord has done for them. And so he brings that idea of him being uh, merciful back at the end, where after he repeats the uh, attributes, he says, forgive now the guiltiness, guiltiness of the people in accordance with the greatness of your loving kindness. And what we realize here is that he is praying to God on behalf of Israel. He is interceding on behalf of Israel, but he's doing so with the word of God. And he's bringing this memory back to the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean God forgot that he was merciful, nor does it mean that the Lord had intended at this very moment just to slaughter all of Israel and start fresh with Moses. But I do believe, without a doubt, I do believe that what the Lord was trying to do was to see what Moses was going to do. Because what we see is Moses ends up crying out to the Lord for forgiveness for the people of Israel. Uh, and ultimately, uh, the Lord says, okay, I'll forgive them, but they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, another 38 years, two they've already spent, and uh, 38 more. And they're going to spend this time in the wilderness because of the uh, one year for each day that the spies spent in the promised land because they spent 40 days in the promised land. And then all of a sudden, while all of this is going on, while God's having this whole conversation, interceding on behalf of Israel, I want you to get this picture in mind of how bad this situation is. Because I think a lot of times we just fluff over this. We read it and we go, oh, well, Israel was clearly stupid in this account. Why did they do this? Okay, cool, we're going to learn a lesson. Let's just do what God says and we move on, right? Uh, and we kind of fluff over it. But it's, it's important to realize that in verse 36, while all of this is going on from verse uh, uh, chapter 14, verse 10, all the way through uh, chapter 14, verse 35, we see that Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel, and he's talking with God and trying to, to repent uh, for Israel and get God to forgive them. Verse 36, while this is happening, then the men whom Moses had sent to explore the land, who had returned and caused the whole community to grumble against him by spreading a bad report about the land, these men spreading the bad report about the land died of the plague and Adonai's presence. Of those men who had gone before him, uh, of those men who had gone to explore the land, only Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, survived. So they are wiped out. These ten spies are wiped out in this plague at the same time that Moses is interceding on behalf of Israel. Then Moses, before he even gets a chance to go back to Israel to tell Israel that the Lord said they're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness, before he even gets a chance to reveal that, these men die. So now Moses goes to the people of Israel, not only with the message from the Lord that they're going to spend another 38 years wandering around aimlessly in the desert, but he's also going to say, oh yeah, by the way, the 10 dudes that led you astray, yeah, they're, they're dead. Uh, the Lord wiped them out. Oh, by the way, you should probably get your act straight because he wants to do this to you. 
Verse 39 says, when Moses related these things to all of Bnei Israel, the people mourned bitterly. They rose the next morning and went up to the high mountain saying, look, let's go up to the place which Adonai promised for we have sinned. But Moses said, why are you disobeying the mouth of Adonai? They will never succeed. Uh, they end up going anyways without the ark of the Lord, uh, uh, without the presence of the Lord leading them, without the rest of the camp with them, and they get slaughtered. I mean, wiped out, I mean, miserably. And, and the Lord said that in the course of the next 38 years, that entire first generation is going to die. This is just the first fruits of that, I guess. They're the first ones to, to bite the dust, and there's lots more that have to go before the uh, second generation can go in. But what we realize here is that the Lord recognizes that we're going to sin. But what's beautiful is the Lord has given us promises. And he understands that even though he's given us these promises, that we sometimes are afraid to walk in them, right? I, I was called from a very early age to be a Messianic rabbi, uh, and I didn't want anything to do with it. My father's a rabbi. Uh, my father-in-law is a rabbi as well. I watched what being in ministry looked like. I saw what people in congregations do to them. I saw all of the good and the bad and the ups and the downs, and I went, no, <laughs> I don't want that. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to go. And I tried my hardest. I ran from it. I tried to go in the Marine Corps, and the Lord shut that door down. And every door, everything I tried to do, the Lord kept shutting doors down. Uh, and, uh, and finally, I went, all right, you win. I'll do whatever you want. Uh, in the early days, it was kind of begrudgingly, because uh, I didn't really, clearly didn't really have any other option. Uh, but as I really started to give in to what the Lord wanted me to do and walk in his promises, I really started to see the blessing that goes with it. But what we see with Israel is Israel has these phenomenal blessings and promises spoken over them. The Lord said, I'm going to give this land to you. I have already given this land to you, right? He doesn't say, I will at some point in the future give this to you. You're going to go and you're going to find your way in. And you're going to have a couple of tussles and some fights and people are going to treat you bad and bully you. But ultimately, you know, a few generations down the road, a few centuries down the road, you'll be able to buy all this land because you'll have all the wealth of the world anyways, right? It's what all the... the, the uh, conspiracy theorists like to say about us is we have all the wealth in the world anyways. Ultimately, you're going to have all the wealth and you'll be able to buy it. It'll be okay. No, the Lord says, I have already given this to you. It is already yours. All you have to do is go ahead and claim it. Take it. Own it. Fight for it. I'm going to prepare the way. You just have to get it. And Israel refused to do so because these 10 spies came back with what seemed like a bad report. They paid attention to these dudes are big and their cities are walled. They didn't pay attention to the part where they started out saying, it is exactly as the Lord said. And if we would look at the world around us and not look at all of the things the enemy is trying to do because they're big and the walls are, uh, their cities are surrounded by walls is the enemy trying to scare us. And if we look at everything that the Lord said, look, I'm going to do A, B, C, and D. And we look out and A, B, C, and D are all done and we're just waiting for whatever's next. But as all of that's done, we're still looking at the big walls and the giants and the big fruit that feeds the big giants and, and how they're scary and we're little and we're not going to be able to do anything because we're relying on what we think we can do as opposed to the realization of what the Lord can do. What's really funny is if we go to Joshua 2, and you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read this real quick. If we go to Joshua 2 which is the actual account of, the, of Joshua sending spies. And Joshua was one of the original spies. And unlike Moses, who sent 12 to the promised land, two came back with a good report, 10 with an evil report, and they came back to the whole nation. Uh, Joshua sends two spies, because only two came back with a good report. He's like, I got a 50-50 shot here. Um, he sends two spies, and those two spies go out in secret, and they come directly back to him. 
They only go to one place. They come directly back to him. When they come back to him, they give him the report, and he goes back to Israel and says, let's go. We got this. And they take off, and they, they take the promised land. Uh, well, Joshua, in chapter 2, uh, Joshua 2, his spies are now in uh, Jericho, and they've met with Rahab, and Rahab is hiding them. Verse 8 says, now before they lay down, she, can't, uh, she came to them on the roof and said to them, uh, said to the men, I know that Adonai has given you the land. Notice, this is somebody that lives in the promised land already, right? She lives in the, the land of Canaan. She is not an Israelite. She lives in the land of Canaan. She lives in Jericho. I know that Adonai has given you the land. Dread of you has fallen on us. All the inhabitants of the land are melting in fear before you. Now, on a rational mind, you read that first little bit and you go, okay, they see Israel coming. They are afraid of what the Lord's going to do. Okay, now they're afraid. Finally, after all this time, they're afraid and the Lord's going to do what he says. But then she goes on and says, for we have heard how Adonai dried up the water of the Sea of Reeds before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond the Jordan to Sihon and Og, uh, whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard about it, our hearts melted and no spirit remained anymore in anyone because of you. For Adonai, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. The people in the promised land, the people in the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, who God said there's no hope left for, they're the ones that believed more in the God of Israel than Israel did. What we realize in what Rahab is saying here is that while Israel spent 40 years cowering in the wilderness, the Canaanites spent 40 years cowering in the promised land knowing that God was going to do this, knowing that they were going to be wiped out, knowing that what God did through Israel and Egypt and, and all the way in their journeys across the wilderness, that he was about to do it to them. And for 40 years, they were scared to death. And if these 10 spies in the nation of Israel had simply gone, you know what? We don't need spies. The Lord said, this is ours. Let's just go get it. And they had just crossed the border then. They were already afraid of them. Everything that happens in the book of Joshua would have happened in numbers. And we wouldn't have ever had Deuteronomy, the book that shouldn't have never been. Everything would have happened then. All the promises God gave us were waiting, and they were waiting for us 40 years later. It's not like anything changed in that amount of time. They were waiting for us. But we wanted to focus on all of the negatives, on all the bad things, on all the things that we can't control. But the reality is, is we can't control any of it. If the Lord has spoken promises over us, if the Lord has told us, which by the way, as believers, if we believe in Yeshua HaMashiach, we have nothing but faith and promises. I'm not talking whether or not the Lord told you you're going to get this job or that job or this house or that house or if you're going to graduate school or you're going to be a multimillionaire or your ministry is going to flourish into this or that or this is going to happen to your family or that's going to happen. None of that matters because I'm not talking just specifically about individual promises. There is a promise on the body of Messiah, on the followers of Yeshua HaMashiach for eternal life and it is ours. But there's a walk that we have to walk as believers to walk in faithfulness with him so that we actually see that. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews tells us five different times not to fall short, not to stop believing over and over again. So that means we have to continue to walk in faithfulness with the Lord. We have to continue to walk in those promises. And guess what? On top of the promise of eternal life that is awaiting us because of salvation, there are also all of those other promises 
all of those for us as individuals, for our communities, for our congregations, for the body of Messiah as a whole, there are promises towards uh, uh, us impacting our synagogue. We have heard prophecy over our synagogue over and over again. And there, we have heard confirmation over and over again that our synagogue is going to be used by God to be a, a, a catalyst for a major move in this area. And that our synagogue is going to be a light on the hill. We're going to be a lighthouse uh, in the area. The Lord told us that our congregation's name is to be Mayim Chaim, Living Waters, because in Baldwin County, we've got the, the, the bay, the lake, uh, the bay, the, uh, the, the gulf, we've got rivers, we've got creeks, we've got all this. So everybody knows how to get in the water. Everyone knows how to play on the water. People work on the water. People live on the water. The water is life here. But the Lord told us that he has placed us here to teach people how and lead people to the waters of life that will never run dry. That's a promise. We're not here just for those that are already saved. We are here to lead those into salvation that need his salvation. Those are promises. But if we're too worried about the little things, like I said earlier, we looked out and had a small crowd last week. And as I looked out, when we're used to a larger crowd, and here's a smaller crowd, and on the human level, I'm going, hey, I know God said all of this, but all I see is, is this. And on the human level, we become Israel. Oh, but there's giants and big walls, and these people are going to slaughter us. But how could this ever work? But the reality is, is the Lord's over there tapping us on the shoulder. Just take that step. Just take that step. Look, Israel didn't even have to swim across the Jordan, right? They walked through on dry ground just like we did the Yom Suf. The Lord parted the water so that we could walk through on dry ground just like we came out of Egypt. We didn't have to swim to get there. We just had to walk. The first battle in Jericho, we didn't have to fight it. We walked around the city a couple of times. We blew a few horns and things fell around us, right? All we had to do was go and move the rubble and, and start our life. The next battle, the next battle, the next battle. We didn't have to do anything. Israel came out of Egypt, and I talk about this a lot when we're dealing with the Exodus itself, but Israel came out of Egypt with Egypt's weapons. Egypt had no weapons. We had their warfare. Their, we had their tools of warfare, and all we had to do was fight. When Egypt came rushing up to us at the Yom Suf, and we thought all was lost, the Lord had already prepared us for that victory too. We were just too afraid to walk in it. So for 40 years, our people wander in the wilderness rather than taking the promises of God, all because of the fact that we were too afraid of the things we can't control while too afraid to realize that the God who controls all things already had control of the situation, even the things we couldn't recognize. We go to Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. It says, Therefore, just as the Ruach HaKodesh says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, speaking of this particular situation. There your fathers put me to the test, though they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked by this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers and sisters, that none of you has an evil heart of unbelief that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day by day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partners of Messiah. If we held our original conviction from uh, firm until to the end, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We go to Numbers chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter um, 13, uh, missing one of my bookmarks.
Either way, Hebrews, uh, I think it's Hebrews 13, says uh, to, to continue on in the good race that we've been assigned, to continue uh, pushing through no matter what until the end. Um, All right, I lost the bookmark. Either way, Hebrews says to continue on in the, the journey the Lord has given us and the race he's given us no matter what, right? doesn't matter what's going on. If anybody's ever been involved in athletics, uh, there is always going to be something that is going to be bigger and badder and faster and stronger than you, all right? Uh, you know, I played football for a little bit when I was in school, and, and in football, I'm, I'm not a small dude, but there were always dudes bigger than me, all right? That's just all there was to it. Uh, I had friends that ran track. And they were fast, but there's always that one guy that's faster than you. It doesn't matter what you do. There's always one person that may be better than you, that may be stronger than you, that may be out to get you. But the reality is, is no matter what's happening on this sphere here on earth, the Lord has everything in control. And if he's spoken promises over our lives, his promises come true. His word never comes back unfulfilled. And all we have to do is walk in it faithfully, no matter what, unashamed, unafraid. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. However, I don't consider my life of any value except that I might finish my course and the office I received from the Lord Yeshua to declare the good news of the grace of God. See, the problem is Israel didn't finish their race. That first generation never finished their race. First generation died off in the wilderness because they were too afraid to walk in faithfulness in the promises of God. All they had to do was cross the Jordan and take the land. It was, they even said it's everything that God said it would be. We just can't do it. But here's the reality. If everything is exactly as God said it would be, that's called confirmation. Affirmation. Walk in it. Walk in it. If you're praying for a job and you feel like the Lord has promised you a job or a promotion or a raise and you're too afraid to step out to see that come to fulfillment, you're never going to see it. And if the Lord has confirmed it over and over and over again and you still don't walk out, you know, if you don't apply for a job, you're never going to get it. Or at least you're rarely going to give it. I guess every once in a while there are circumstances where somebody walks up and goes, hey, you want a job? But if you don't apply for it, you're never going to get it. If the Lord promised you, you're going to get whatever job. You're, you're going to get the dream job of your life, and you just never put in that application because you're just trusting the Lord to give it to you. That's not walking in faith. That's just being lazy, right? We're not called to be lazy. We're called to walk. As a matter of fact, our life as believers, all the way through Scripture, the image is that it is a walk. No matter what we do, it is a walk. And we have to walk in faithfulness with the Lord. Israel had promises from the Lord. All they had to do was walk and take it. You and I have promises from the Lord. Uh, I believe in perfect faith that the scriptures tell us that all Israel will be saved. That means I believe my family will be saved. That means I believe my friends who are Jewish, who have family that are not yet believers will be saved. That means I believe that all those in Israel have a chance to be saved. I believe all those in America have a chance to be saved that are, are, are Jews. I believe these things are going to become a reality. And not only that, but the Lord says, Yeshua says in the Gospels, that when all Israel proclaims, He'll return. But until then, He won't. So not only do I believe that His word is true and all Israel will be saved, but I also believe that it will happen because I believe He's coming back. And if I believe He's coming back, I have to believe that's going to happen because He's not coming back till that happens. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't know what it's going to look like. I know what's going to happen. And I believe in perfect faith that it will.
I believe that the Lord wants all of your families who do not yet know the Messiah to come to faith in his saving grace of Messiah Yeshua. I believe it is a promise he has for us. Our life as believers is to be a light among the darkness. And guess what happens when we are light among darkness? Things are attracted to it. They're drawn to it. And if we are the light of Messiah in this dark world, people will be drawn to it. If we walk in the promises that he has given us, people will be drawn to it. They will see it. They will experience it. We will see God do things in mighty and miraculous ways. The Lord tells us in, uh, in the Gospels, he says that when the Comforter comes, we'll be able to do even greater things than he did. How many believe that the Lord wants to do signs and wonders through your lives? The Ruach HaKodesh that allowed for the, the signs and wonders to occur through Yeshua and the Talmudim, the disciples, when we read about Paul walking down the streets and saying, get up and be healed, open your eyes and see, uh, pick up your mat and go, right? Silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I given to you, get up and walk. That's our promise. And if we're not walking in it, we're not walking in faithfulness with the Lord. Uh, in, in closing, I was, I'll just mention this real quick, and I encourage you to go and, uh, uh, you remember we had Ron Cantor come a few months back from uh, Israel. He, he lives in Tel Aviv and ministers in, in Israel, um, and now he's the, uh, I think it's called the um, Israeli director for uh, God TV, which is a growing, uh, believing-based TV station. Uh, and uh, international TV station, and they have kind of a base in Israel now. And, and Ron Cantor uh, was in Israel. Uh, he lives there, but he was in Israel. And uh, Todd White, anybody know who Todd White is? I think I talked about this briefly the other night at Bible study. But Todd White is this, uh, I really don't know how to describe him. I don't know a lot about him. I haven't heard his teachings that much. But Todd White is this evangelist of sorts. Uh, I don't know that that's a fitting term for him. But he's evangelist of sorts. He's this really tall, big white dude with like four-foot-long dreads. Uh, that you see videos of him preaching all over Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and all this stuff, right? Uh, now you know what I'm talking about. The dreads did it for you. But he's, he's really tall. But for some reason, uh, the, the Lord is really moving through this guy. And I don't know a lot about him on a general level. I do know that he lived for 20-some-odd years as a, uh, a drug addict, uh, you know, kind of on the street type of thing. He was a, a, a down-and-out, the worst you can be drug addict. And he had this uh, uh, miraculous divine encounter with the Lord. And gave his life to the Lord, found salvation, became clean, and, and the Lord began to move through him almost immediately as he would share his testimony with people. People would come to salvation in the streets. Like walking down the street, he would share his testimony with people and they'd come to salvation. He, would, he was infilled with the Ruach HaKodesh when he became a believer, as, as we all should be and all uh, have the ability to. Uh, he was infilled with the Ruach HaKodesh, and as he's walking down the street, he just goes, he sees somebody that's hurting, and he walks up and he shares his testimony and says, be healed, and they're healed. Dying of cancer, poof, there they go. They're good to go. Life's ready. And they're, they're, everything's clear. No problems at all. Well, he happened to be going to Israel to do something with God TV, and he was going to be in Israel. And Ron Cantor, uh, who was a Messianic Jewish uh, believer in, in Israel, uh, part of a leadership in a Messianic congregation in Tel Aviv, a uh, good friend of ours, Ron has the opportunity to minister with him around uh, Israel, around Jerusalem. And everywhere that Todd and Ron went, as Todd would share his testimony with ultra-Orthodox, with military people in the IDF, with, you know, average Joe Schmo walking down the street in Israel, as he would share his testimony with people, as he would pray for them, lay hands on them, people were being healed and coming to salvation. I mean, 
revival kind of stuff. Like when we think this massive outpouring revival, this is what we're talking about. And, and now since then, people from the congregation that Ron's in, in leadership at and, and ministry at uh, who were impacted by what Todd White has done are now going out in the streets and replicating that. And guess what's happening? People are being healed and lives are being changed and they're coming to salvation. These are promises that the Lord has spoken to us just like he spoke to Israel and said, the promised land is yours. All you have to do is walk in and claim it. These are promises that are ours. The blood of Messiah was not poured out just so that you and I could be clean and be comfortable for eternity, but it was poured out so that you and I could be saved, that we can impact the world around us so that we're not the only ones comfortable in heaven for eternity. And the days we live in, the only thing, and I've been saying this for a while now, and I truly believe it, the only thing that will lead people to salvation is seeing the power of God among them. And that's what you and I are here for. That's our responsibility. It is time that we as believers walk in the promises of God that are ours, that we claim. And I don't mean name it and claim it. I want a Maserati. I'm just going to walk in and take it kind of name it and claim it. I mean claim the promises of God, his word, claim it and walk in it and live in it. And I'd be happy with a Maserati too. If somebody wants to give that to me, I'll be right. But we're supposed to walk in the true promises of God. You and I are not called to warm a seat in the synagogue on Saturday mornings. We are called to be a light to the nations. All right? Just like the, the Western Wall in, uh, in Jerusalem, the Kotel, is called a synagogue of, of prayer, a house of prayer for all nations. This is a house of prayer for all nations. All right? Our purpose is to be a light to the nation. Our purpose is to carry the presence of God into the world around us. And we are just like what we're hearing about occurring in Jerusalem and, and various parts of Israel and Tel Aviv because of what happened through Todd White and Ron Cantor and others. We are supposed to do that. And that's not something that's unique to Jerusalem and to Tel Aviv. That's something that's supposed to happen here and in Bangladesh and in China and Japan and Russia and England and anywhere else where there are true Bible-believing, walking, the power and authority of God believers among them. We are to walk in the promises of God and see transformation in our lives and the lives of those around us. And so I want to encourage you this morning to continue to run the good race. I want to encourage you this morning that until we are in the kingdom for eternity with our heavenly Father sitting around his throne, as long as his breath is flowing through our veins, the breath of life is ours to live in, and we are here on this earth, it is our job to be the kingdom of God here. It is our job to walk up to those who are in need of healing and proclaim healing, to walk up those that are in need of freedom and proclaim freedom, to walk up those that are in need of deliverance and proclaim deliverance in the name of Yeshua Mashiach by the blood of the Lamb that has been given for us to find freedom and the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit that has given to us that we can impact the world around us for His purposes. We, the body of Messiah, have become lazy. We have become lazy. We are more concerned with ourselves and our groups and the people in our congregation than we are with anybody out there. We've become lazy. Go and make Talmudim disciples of all nations in the world that we live in today. That's done through the power of God flowing through his people. And we've got to walk in it. We've got to live in it. We've got to live in it day in and day out. Or else we will become like Israel, wandering in the wilderness aimlessly for years upon years upon years upon years. The spies came back with the evil report on Tishbaab, the ninth of Av. Messiah Yeshua crossed the Jordan River into the wilderness, the same wilderness Israel was in 
before they took the promised land. He was immersed by Yochanan Hamabil, by John the Immerser, uh, on Tishba'av, the ninth of Av, and on that same day crossed into the wilderness and spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy, being tested by the enemy. And then he crosses back into the promised land 40 days later. He literally redeemed the mistakes of Israel in the wilderness. He began his ministry. Many people look at the beginning of his ministry as when he went back to his home synagogue and read from Isaiah. No, he began his ministry right after he was immersed by John because the first thing in his ministry was the very work he came to do, which was redemption. He spent one day in the wilderness for every year that the nation spent in the wilderness for every day that the spies spent in the promised land. And he redeemed their mistakes. Every single one of them. And he comes back into the promised land. He goes to home synagogue and he is called up to the Bema to read from the Haftarah. And what are the words he proclaims? I have come to set the captive free. And then what do we do in the 21st century body of Messiah? We find freedom and we hoard it. But we're called to bring that freedom to the world around us. Amen? So I want to encourage you this morning, do not be Israel wasting away in the wilderness for no reason at all. Be the second generation who was unafraid of walking in the promises of God and saw the fulfillment of the signs and wonders and the power of God when we simply trust in Him. Walk in the, the power and authority that was given to the Talmudim, the disciples, to Peter and to Paul and to others who walked in the power and authority that was given to them because of the blood of the Lamb poured out upon them. Be like Yeshua who said that in the come, when the Comforter comes, we can do even greater things. You know what? I don't know how you top raising the dead, but I want to see how it works. And I believe it's something that is a promise to us to be a part of. Not just raising the dead, but seeing those that are sick be healed, seeing those that are lame learn to walk seeing those that are bound by the devil into all sorts of messed up uh, 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 oppressions and, and, and curses and uh, uh, addictions and whatever else, find freedom, true freedom in Messiah. And I don't mean just throwing the bottle away and walking away. I mean true freedom in Messiah. No more desire, no more hunger, no more thirst for any of that, but instead being fully cleansed, washed, and filled by the presence of the Lord. And taking that to the nations around us. You want to see revival? Let's start walking in it. I don't believe there was ever revival after revival after revival. There's been one revival. It began in Acts chapter 2. And it's still raging. The only thing holding it up now is you and I aren't walking in it like they did. So how about we get out our shells and we walk this thing? Because it's not going to get any easier if we just keep going next year or next month or, or down the road sometime. It'll be okay. We'll do it. It's not going to get any easier. Things are just going to get worse and worse and worse as we get closer and closer to the return of Messiah. It's now or never. The scripture says that, that those that are saved will be known by the fruit that they produce. Let's produce fruit. Let's produce giant grapes and have to be carried by multiple men on a stick because they're too big to carry because every promise the Lord spoke is true and his land is good and plentiful as he said it would be. Amen. Avrachamim, Father of mercy, we worship you, we love you, and we adore you. We thank you, Lord, for your power and presence. We thank you for your word. And Father, I pray that you will uplift every single person that's heard this message to walk in your power and authority, to walk in the authority of your Ruach to speak life into those who need life, to speak healing to those who need healing, to see signs and wonders and miracles flow through us, that we will see people come to know salvation because of what you have done in our lives. Father, let our lives be a testimony of the truth of what you can do 
with even the least of these, Father. None of us in this room are any better than anyone else, and some of us are even worse than we could ever imagine, Lord, but you saved us all and you bought us by the blood of the Lamb that we can be used by you for the good and glory of your kingdom. Father, we want to walk in it. We want to experience. We want to know your power, your might, your authority. Father, breathe over us right now, Lord, your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, Father, the breath of your Holy Spirit. Breathe over us right now, Lord, the anointing, the outpouring, the authority of your Spirit and your presence, your divine Shekhinah, your glory upon us, Lord. Reveal it to us in a mighty and powerful way. Use us for the good of your kingdom. Use us to see people come to salvation. And Father, use us for your purposes. Let us not be afraid to walk in the truth of your promises. Let us walk boldly and and without fear. Let us walk uh, uh, unadulterated into what you have in store for us with no worries of consequence or what's going to happen here and now, Father, but instead solely worried about seeing lives in your kingdom for eternity. In the name of Yeshua Messiah, we pray and everyone says, Amen and Amen.